0: CHAPTER 10 OF THE SOCIAL HISTORY OF SMOKING This is a LibriVox recording. Our LibriVox recording are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Jeff The Social History of Smoking by G.L. Apperson. ISO Chapter 10 Early Victorian Days Seen to match thy rich perfume, Chemic Ardenia presumed, through her quaint Alembic strain, not so sovereign to the brain. Lamb, a farewell to tobacco. The social attitude towards smoking in early Victorian days, and for some time later, was curious. The development of cigar smoking among those classes from which tobacco had long been practically banished, and the natural consequence spread downwards of the use of cigars. In accordance with the invariable law of fashion, together with the continual devotion to the pipe among those whose love of tobacco had never slackened, made smoking a much more general practice than it had been for some generations. It is somewhat significant that Dickens, in the old curiosity shop, 1840, made that repulsive dwarf, cube, smoke cigars. When the little monster comes home unexpectedly in the fourth chapter of the book and breaks up his wife's tea party, he settles himself in an armchair, with his large head and face squeezed up against the back and his little legs planted on the table, with a case bottle of rum, cold water, and a box of cigars before him. Now, Mrs. Quilp, he says, I feel in a smoking humor. And shall probably blaze away all night. But sit where you are, if you please, in case I want you. Kuo smoked cigars one after the other, his wretched wife sitting patiently by, from sunset till some time after daybreak. The dwarf's tastes, however, were Catholic. A little later in the book, the reader finds him, when encamped in the back parlor of the old man's shop, smoking pipe after pipe and compelling the knavish attorney, Sampson Brass, to do the same. Tobacco smoke always causes Brass a great internal discomposure and annoyance, but this made no difference to Culp, who insisted on his friend continuing to smoke, while he inquired, is it good Brass, is it nice, is it fragrant, do you feel like the Grand Turk? But Culp and Brass were not in society, Notwithstanding that the number of smokers had so largely increased, and was continually increasing, smoking was regarded socially as something of a vice, to be practiced in inconvenient places and not too publicly. There were still plenty of active opponents and denouncers of tobacco. One of the most distinguished was the great Duke of Wellington, who abominated smoking and was annoyed by the increase of cigar smoking among officers of the army. In the early 40s, he issued a general order, number 577, which contained a paragraph that would have delighted the heart of King James I. It ran thus. The commander-in-chief had been informed that the practice of smoking, by the use of pipes, cigars, or cheroots, have become prevalent among officers of the army, which is not only in itself a species of intoxication occasioned by the fumes of tobacco, but undoubtedly occasions drinking and tippling by those who acquire the habit. And he entreats the officers commanding regiments to prevent smoking in the mass room of their several regiments and in the adjoining apartment and to discourage the practice among the officers of junior rank in their regiments. The duke's prejudice was stronger than his facts. The statement, not very grammatically expressed, that the practice of smoking was itself a species of intoxication, was absurd enough. But the allegation, introduced by a question begging undoubtedly, that smoking occasioned drinking was directly contrary to the facts. It was the introduction of after-dinner drinking that largely helped to kill the bad old practice of continued after-dinner drinking. Perhaps the best reflection of a comment upon the attitude of social toward smoking is to be found in the ironical, satirical pages of Thackeray. Let the reader turn to the confessions of George Fitzbrudel, Esquire. The Fitz papers first appear in Fraser's magazine for 1842 and he will find how smoking was regarded at that date and what Thackeray, speaking through the puppet Feast thought of it. George starts by saying, I'm not in the first place, what is called a ladies' man, having contracted an irrepressible habit of smoking after dinner which has obliged me to give up a great deal of the dear creature's society. Nor can I go much to the country houses for the same reason. The ladies had a keen scent for the abominable odour of tobacco, and distrusted the men who smoked. Here is Fistudos, or Thackeray's comment on it. What is this smoking that it should be considered a crime? I believe in my heart that the women are jealous of it as of a rival. They speak of it as of some secret of vice that seizes upon a man and makes him a prior from genteel society. I would lay a guinea that many lady who has just been kind enough to read the above lines lays down the book after this confession of mine that I'm a smoker and says Oh the vulgar wretch! And passes on to something else. He goes on to prophecy and for once the most gratuitous of follies has been justified by the event The tobacco will conquer. Look over the white world, he says to the ladies, and see that your adversary has overcome it. Germany has been puffing for three score years. France smokes to a man. Do you think you can keep the enemy out of England Shah, look at his progress. Ask the clubhouses, have they smoking rooms or not? Are they not obliged to yield to the general want of the age, in spite of the resistance of the old women on the committees? I, for my part, do not despair to see a bishop lolling out of the ovencomb with a cheroot in his mouth, or at any rate, a pipe stuck in his shovel head. The flight of fancy in the last sentence has hardly yet been fulfilled. But I saw, many years ago, a distinguished man of letters, the late Mr. Francis Turner Pagre, of golden treasury fame, who was an inveterate smoker, sitting on one of the cane benches by the door of the Edencombe Club, smoking a short clay pipe. Thackeray does not appear to have realized that Tobacco was not invading England for the first, but for the second time. Nor did he foresee that the ladies, to whom he had addressed his impassioned defense of smoking, would not only submit to the conqueror, but would themselves be found among his joyous devotees. George Fisbudo recounts how, as a boy, he was flogged for smoking. And how, at Oxford, Smoking among other villainies led to his rustication. Later, his tobacco, combined with insolence to his tobacco hating colonel, conducted him out of the army into the retirement of civil life, and so on and so on. There is, of course, an element of exaggeration in all this, but Mr. FitzBuddle's experiences and reflections. Threw much light on the social history of smoking in the early decades of the nineteenth century. Mr. Harry Furness, in the preface to his edition of Thackeray, has an admirably terse and pertinent paragraph on this aspect of the Feast papers. He says, No gentlemen in those days were seen smoking even a weed in the streets. Cigarettes were practically unheard of in England and outside one's private smoking room, pipes were tabooed. Men in society slunk into their smoking rooms, or when there was no smoking room, into the kitchen or servant's house after the domestics had retired. Smoking jacket was worn in the place of their ordinary evening coat, and their well-oiled, massive head of hair was protected by a gorgeously decorated smoking cap. Thus the odor of tobacco was not brought into the drawing room. The fear of odor of tobacco smoke was extraordinary. Mr GC Buckmaster in his reminiscences describes the famous debating society at Colger's Hall, and says that after one night at the Colgers, it took three days on a common to purify your clothes from the smoke. The journalists and the bohemians who met at the codgers were about or below the dictates of fashion and smoking was always a feature of their gatherings the yard of clays provided gratis for members and it is to its almost universities, says Mr Peter Villa in his book on the codgers and fleet street that the colliers owe their existence in the present quarters. Once upon a time, the colliers swam to a well-appointed room where carpets covered the floors, and the chairs were upholstered, and the tables had finely polished marble tops. The hot pipes and smoldering matches stained the table tops and burned the carpets, so that they had the option of abandoning either the pipe or the quarters. Old customers died hard with codgers, and they stuck to their pipe. The pipe is a feature in our illustration of caudarian meetings. The influence of court was wholly against smoking. Both Queen Victoria and the Prince Consort detested it, so tobacco was taboo wherever the court was. The late lady, Dorothy Neville, who lived to see the new triumph of tobacco, said that she thought the greatest minor change in social habits which she had witnessed was that in the attitude assumed toward smoking, which in her youth, and even later, was except in certain well-defined circumstances, regarded as a little less than a heinous crime. The Lady Dorothy remarked that smoking rooms in country houses were absolutely unknown, but that was not quite correct, as we shall see in the experiences of Professor von Hosendorf. To be mentioned directly, such gentlemen as wished to smoke after the lady had gone to bed, used as a matter of course to go either to the servants' house or to the harness room in the stables, where a night nice, some sort of rough preparation was generally made for their accommodation. Well do I remember the immense care which devotees of tobacco used to take, when sailing forth in the country to enjoy it, not to allow the faintest whiff of the smoke to penetrate into the hall as they lit their cigars at the door. In eighteen forty five, Dickens wrote, I generally take a cigar after dinner when I'm alone. The reservation in the last three words may be noted. In the book of Snobs, Major Wellesley Ponto goes to smoke a cigar in the stables. Ponto had no smoking room with Lord Gilles, who is described as a very young, short, sandy-haired, and tobacco-smoking nobleman, who cannot have left the nursery very long. Later, Ponto and Gilles resume smoking operations in the now vacant kitchen. Even so late as 1861, the attitude toward smoking was still much the same in some quarters. In that year, a German scholar, Professor Franz von Hosendorf, paid a visit to a country gentleman's house in Gloucestershire, Hardwick. Later, he printed an account of his experiences, a translation of which was published in this country in 1878. When the professor arrived, his host, and the first greeting over, at once pointed out to him a secluded apartment, the one which he felt it was most important for Germans German to know, namely the smoking room. According to his idea, continued the professor, Every German had three national characteristics, smoking, singing, and sabbath-breaking. The first and the only idea in which I found him led astray by an abstract theory. Later, his hostess, explaining to him the method and routine of life in an England country house, said that the ladies retired about 11, while the gentlemen finished their day's work in the smoking room, the secluded apartment, or enjoyed a cigar at the billiard table. But the smoke in the billiard table room was only allowed if that room was not near the drawing room or in the hall close by. You must have often been surprised, she continued, that we English ladies have such invincible repugnance to tobacco smoke, but there is no dispensation from our rule of abstinence except in those rooms which my husband has already pointed out to you. The professor, after luncheon, was pressed by the squire, who on any other occasion will never waste time in smoking and only filled his short clay pipe at the end of his day's work, to come to his smoking room. As regards, this room the professor dryly remarked, I felt I had noticed that even the keyhole was stopped up, in order to preserve the lady's delicate nerves from every disagreeable sensation. After dinner, again, when the lady had left the table, the gentleman passed the Battle of Port, sherry and claret, with the regularity of planets from hand to hand, but no one dreamed of smoking. That was reserved for the secluded apartment after the lady had gone to bed. Neither host nor guest imagined what a revolution another generation or so would make in these social habits. In the fifties, the pipe smoked was mostly clays. There were the long clays or church wooden to be smoked in hours of ease and leisure, and the short clay cottage, which could be smoked while a man was at work. Milo, a tobacconist in the Strand, and Inderwick, whose shop was near Leicester Square, was famous for their pipes, which could be bought for six pennies apiece. A burlesque point of 1853, in praise of an old black pipe, says, Think not of meerschaum is that bow, away. E found enthusiasts is common clay. By Milo's stamps, purchased by Milo's hand, and for a tz purchase in the strand. I'm indebted for this quotation to a correspondent of Nose and Queries, September 27, 1913. Another correspondent of the same journal, Colonel W.F also replying a query of mine, wrote, Before briar wood pipes came into common use, clay pipes were of necessity smoked by all classes. When I matriculated at Oxford at the Easter of 1853, university men used to be rather particular about the pipes they smoked. The finest were made in France, and the favorite brand was Violet Saint-Omer. I do not know if this can is still smoked, but it was made of soft clay but easily colored. In taverns, of course, the church warden, beloved of Carlyle and Tennyson, was usually smoked to the accompaniment, was usually smoked to the accompaniment of Gut at Simpson's Fish Ordinary at Billingsgate. These pipes were always placed on the table after dinner. Together with schools of shack tobacco, and a smoking parliament moistened with hot and cold punch according to the season was generally held during the following hour. Of course, in those days, no one ever thought of smoking a pipe in the presence of Lady. Colonel Harold Mallet at the same time wrote, When I was a cadet at Sandhurst in eighteen fifty-five to fifty-eight, Milo's cutty pipe were quite the thing. And the selection by cadets of a good one out of a fresh consignment packed in sodas was easily washed by joints. Of course we were imitating our parents. It was no doubt these cuddy pipes which are referred to in one of the sporting books of Robert Curtis as the clay pipes of gentility in a private letter to me, which I am privileged to quote. Colonel Prado adds some further particulars as to the social attitude of early Victorian days toward tobacco, particulars which are the more valuable and interesting as being supplied from personal recollection of those now somewhat distant days. The Colonel writes: "When I was a young man, people never thought of smoking. In that house agents called the reception rooms." The principal reason being that the occupation of these rooms were shared by ladies, and it was bad form, not, by the way, a contemporary expression, to smoke well in the company of the fair half of creation. Consequently, men had either to indulge in the practice out of doors, or else, as you say, sneak away to the kitchen when the servants had gone to bed, and puff up the chimney it was only in large houses that a billiard table could be found and even in a billiard table a pipe or cigar was tabooed if lady were present while smoking-room could no more be found in middle-class houses than bathrooms both cutties and church warden were smoked but the latter of course were not adept for peoples engaged in active pursuits and were essentially of what i may call the sanitary nature You could not even walk while holding a long church warden in your mouth. And consequently, the short clay was most favored by young men at Sandhurst and the universities. Laborers smoked short clay when out of doors, and church warden when they rested from their labors and took their ease in their inn in the evenings. Mr. Furness, in the paragraph quoted in a previous page, says, no gentleman in those days was seen smoking even a weed in the streets the nearest approach to this seems to have been smoking on club steps thackeray in the seventeenth chapter of the book of snobs speaks of dandies smoking their cigars upon the steps of wise most fashionable of clubs and in an earlier chapter of young insane famish lounging and smoking on the steps of union jack club with half a dozen other young wigs of the fourth or fifth order, two of Thackeray's own drawings in the book of snobs, in chapter three and nine, show men—one civil, the other military—smoking cigars out of doors. But as these were no doubt Aaron snobs, the drawings may be accepted as proof of Mr. Furness's statement. In this same book, Thackeray says ironically. Think of that den of abomination, which I'm told has been established in some clubs called the Smoking Room. The satirist was very familiar with the smoking room at the club he loved well. In the Little G, the original Club Clubhouse was at 35 King Street Convent Garden. When the club was founded in 1831, it had formerly been a quite old-fashioned family hotel but apparently was not furnished with a smoking room. For one of the first acts of the club, when they obtained possession of the house, was to build out over the lease a large and comfortable smoking room. Shirley Brooks said that this room, which was reached by a young passage from the stranger's dining room, was not a cheerful apartment by daylight and when empty, but which at night and full was felt the most cheerful apartment in town. At other clubs of more fashion, perhaps, but certainly of less good fellowship, smoking rooms made their way more slowly. At once, smoking was not allowed at all till 1845. The Alfred Club, founded in 1808, which Lord Byron described as a pleasant, a little too sober and literary, perhaps, but on the whole, a decent source on a rainy day, on which Sir William Fraser called a sort of minor adencombe, owed his death in 1855, if report be true, to dispute about smoking. One section of the members wished for improvement smoking room they called the existing room, which was at the top of the house an infamous hole, while well, the more old-fashioned and more influential members objected to any improvement. The latter carried the day, but the consequent loss of members ruined the club, which soon after ceased to exist. This secession must have been subsequent to that of the bishops, of whom at one time many members, but who left, it is said, because of the introduction of a billiard table the growth of cigar smoking was rapid. Mr. Stymons, in his book on tobacco, published in 1857, remarked that no way of using tobacco had made a more striking advance in England within the preceding 20 years than cigars. For a long time, it had been confined in this country to the richer class of smokers, but when he wrote it was in universal use, the wonders that with so many men smoking cigars, the old domestic and club restrictions, as pilloried in Thackeray's pages, were maintained so long. In eighteen fifty three, Leach had an admirably drawn sketch in Punch of Peter Familius in the absence of his wife, giving a little dinner. Beside him sits his small son, and on either side of the table sit two of his cronies. One has a cigar in his hand and is blowing a cloud of smoke, while the other is selecting the weed, the decanters and glasses, and with disgust written plainly on her face. The objectionable child beside him says, Lord Pa, are you going to smoke? My eye, won't you catch it when Ma comes home for making the curtain smile? Another witness to the rapid development of cigar smoking is Captain Grono, the elder of the well-known reminiscences. Grono says that the famous surgeon, Sir Astley Cooper, on one occasion perceiving that he was fond of smoking, cautioned him against that habit, telling him that it would sooner or later be the cause of his death. This must have been before 1841 when Sir Astley died. Writing in the 60s, Grono said, If Sir Ashley were now alive, he would find everybody with a cigar in his mouth. Men smoke nowadays wells they are occupied in working or hunting, riding in carriages or otherwise employed, which shows how the prejudice against the outdoor smoking was then breaking down. During the experience of a long life, however, continued Grono, I never knew but one person of whom it was said that smoking was the cause of his death. He was the son of an arracher and an attach at our embassy in Paris. But alas, I have known thousands who have been carried out only to their love of the bottle. Thackeray, as the satirist of the foolish social prejudice against smoking, was naturally an inveterate smoker himself. He died in 1863, and so hardly saw the beginning of a change in the attitude of society towards the pestilent weed. But he was one of the many men of letters and artists who, despising the conventions of society, were largely instrumental in breaking down stupid restrictions and in overcoming senseless prejudice, and were thus herald of freedom. Charles Keane's attitude was that of many artists, he smoked a little Jacobin clay pipe in his sky parlour, overlooking the Strand, and did not care in the least what the world might think or not think about that were any other subject. Those who smoked pipes at Cambridge continued to smoke pipes afterwards, whatever society might do. Spadding, who spent his life on the elucidation of Bacon, was one of the apostles and he continued the pipe lover to the end. In 1832, we hear of Tennyson being in London with him, and smoking all the day. Lady Ricci in Tennyson and his friends says, I can remember vaguely, on one occasion through the cloud of smoke, looking across a darkening room at the noble, grave head of the poet laureate. He was sitting with my father in the twilight after some family meal In the old house in Kensington, Thackeray was a cigar smoker, but Tennyson was a devotee of the pipe. It was on this occasion, as the poet himself reminded Thackeray's daughter, that while the novelist was speaking, Lady Rich's little sister looked up suddenly from the book over which she had been absorbed, saying in her sweet childish voice, Papa! Why do you not write books like Nicholas Nicobot? Tennyson wrote in memoriam at Shawell Rectory near Lutterworth, Leicestershire. The rector was a Mr. Elhurst, a native of the Poys Lincolnshire village. The latest historian of Lutterworth says that the greatest puffs of tobacco smoke, with which he Tennyson mellowed his thoughts, proved insufferable to his host and he was accordingly turned out into Mr. Elmhurst's workshop in the garden, which in consequence became the birthplace of one of the gems of English literature. About 1842, when Tennyson opened dined at the Old Cock by Temple Bar and at other taverns, the perfect dinner for his taste, says his son, was a beefsteak, a potato, a cut of cheese, a pint of port and afterwards her pipe. When the Kinsley paid the Tennyson a visit about 1859, Charles Kinsley, so the laureate, told his son, talked as usual on all sorts of topics, and worked hard up and down the study for hours smoking furiously, and affirming that tobacco was the only thing that kept his nerves quiet. The late laureate, Alfred Austin once asked Tennyson, after reading the passage in Dorothy's Wordsworth journal that William had gone to bed very tired with writing the prelude if he had ever felt tired by writing poetry i think now said the poet but tired with the accompaniment of too much smoking kingsley's devotion to smokes seems to have surprised tennyson who was no light smoker himself the most curious story illustrating kingsley's love of tobacco is that told in the life of Archbishop Benson by his son, Mr. A.C. Benson, one day about the year 1860, the future archbishop was working with Rector of Eversley in a remote part of the parish. on common when Kingsley suddenly said, I must smoke a pipe, and forthwith went to a furried booth and felt about in it for a time. Presently, he produced a clay church wooden pipe, which he lighted and solemnly smoked as he walked, putting it when he had done into a hole among some tree roots, I'm telling my father that he had a cache of pipes in several places in the parish to meet the exigencies of a sudden desire for tobacco. If this story did not appear in the life of the Archbishop, some skepticism on the part of the reader might be excused. Carlyle, As everyone knows, was a great smoker. The story is familiar. It might be true that one evening he and Tennyson sat in the solemn silence, smoking for hours, one on each side of the fireplace, and that when the visitor rose to go, Carlyle, as he bade him good night, said, "Man, Alfred, we have had a great night. Come again soon." Tennyson's own devotion to the baker led on at least one occasion to a peculiar and somewhat questionable proceeding. Mr. W. M. Rossetti had a temporary acquaintance with the poet, and in the reminiscences which he published in 1806, he told a curious anecdote concerning him which was new to print. Rossetti told, on the authority of owner, how in the course of a trip with friends to Italy, tobacco such as Tennyson could smoke, gave out at some particular city, whereupon the poet packed up his portmanteau and returned home, breaking up the party. The late Joseph Knight, who reviewed Rosetti's volumes in the come, vouched for the truth of his relation, which he had heard, not only from Warner, but also from Tennyson's brother Septimus. In more fashionable circles, the mere possession of a pipe might be looked at as gains Robertson's comedy society was produced in eighteen sixty five and in it tom stylus a somewhat bohemian journalist has the misfortune in a fashionable ballroom when pulling off his handkerchief to bring out his pipe with it from his pocket the vulgar thing falls upon the floor and tom is ashamed to claim his property and so acknowledge his ownership of a pipe he presently calls a footman who comes with a tree and sugar tongues pick up the offending briar with the tongues and carries it out with an air of ineffable disgust undergraduates like men of letters did not pay much attention to the conventional attitudes of society towards tobacco and pipes maintain their popularity in college rooms thackeray in the book of snobs describes youth at the university wine party as drinking bad wines, telling bad stories, singing bad songs over and over again, milk punch, smoking, ghastly headache, frightful spectacle of dessert table next morning, and smell of tobacco. But the satirists often tend to be epigrammatic at the expense of accuracy, and this picture is at least too highly colored. In the recently published memoir of J. John Willis Clark, some reminiscences of the late registry are included, and J. does not recognize Thackeray's picture as quite true of the ones of his undergraduate day, that is, about 1850. They may, he says, have told bad stories and some bad songs, as Thackeray says in his book of Snubs. I can only say that I never heard either the one or the other but certainly there was noise and there was smoke, plenty of it. Conversation there was none, says Jay, only a noise. Then came smoke. In a short time the atmosphere became dense, the desert and the wine came to an end and it was chapel time. One sorry Clark tells of an extraordinary attempt to smoke. Referring to the compulsory chapels, he says that as a rule, everybody behaved with propriety, whether they regarded the tenants as irksome or otherwise. But he admits, iniquity corner, as the space at the east end on each side of the altar was cut, may occasionally have been factually sheltered card playing. But when a young snob went so far as to light a cigar there, he had the pleasure of finishing it in the country, for he was rusticated. It was on a cognate occasion in Jesus College, in which cobbler's wax played a prominent part. That Dr. Corey dismissed the culprit after a severe lecture. With these admirable words, your conduct, sir, is what a Christian would call a profane and a gentleman vulgar. At Oxford in November 1859, the vice chancellor and proctors issued the following notice, which shows that occasional outbreak of bad manners might happen on the ISIS as on the camp, whereas complaints have been made that some undergraduate members of the university are in the habit of smoking at public entertainments and otherwise creating annoyance, they are hereby cautioned against the repetition. Of such and gentlemanlike conduct, there was plenty of smoking among undergraduate at Oxford in those days, as may be seen in such books as *The Adventures of Mister Verdant Green* and *Hughes Tom Brown at Oxford*, both of which date from 1861. When Tom, after reading about, thought of going out, there was a wine party at one of his acquaintance's rooms or he could go and smoke a cigar in the pool room, or at any other one of a dozen other places. Cigar was the fashionable form of smoke. When Tom offers his box to Captain Hardy, that the worthy son says, You might as well give him a glass of absinthe. He is church at home, and can't smoke anything but a long clay, with which the old sailor was accordingly supplied. A striking example of the attitude of the mid-19th century days towards tobacco may be found in connection with railways and railway traveling. In the early days of such travel, there were no smoking compartments, and indeed smoking was strictly forbidden practically everywhere on railway premises. Relics of this time may still be seen in many stations and on many platforms in the shape of somewhat dingy play cart. In the shape of some whole dingy placards announcing that smoking is strictly forbidden, and that the penalty is so much. Nowadays the incense from pipes and cigarettes curse freely round these obsolete notices and helps to make them still dingier. If you wanted to smoke when traveling, you had either to contrive to get a compartment to yourself, or to arrange terms with your fellow travelers. In a punch of eighteen fifty five, Leach drew a railway platform scene wherein figures one of those precocious youngsters of a type love to draw. A railway porter says to his mates as the two gaze at the back of this mouse male with his cane and top hat. What does he say, Bill? Why? He says he must have a compartment to himself, because he can't get on without his smoke another drawing in a punch of 1861 points the same moral. it represents an elderly party and a fast Antonian seated side by side in a first-class compartment the latter has a cigar in one hand and with the other offers coins to his neighbor the explanation is as follows old party really sir i'm the manager of the line sir I must inform you that if you persist in smoking, you'll be fined 40 shillings, sir. in Tony, well old boy, must have my smoke, so may as well take your 40 shillings now. Tobacco was always popular in the army, and even the strongest of anti-tobacconists would have felt that there was at least something, if not much, to be said for the abused weed when in times of campaigning suffering it played so beneficent a part in soothing and comforting weary and wounded men the period covered by this chapter includes both the crimean war and the indian mutiny and everyone knows how the soldiers in the crimea and in india like craved for tobacco as for one of the greatest luxuries and how even occasional smoke cheered and encouraged and sustain suffering humanity. The late Dr. Norman Kerr, who was no friend to ordinary everyday smoking, wrote, There are occasions such as in the trenches during military operations, when worn out with an exposure and fatigue, or when exhausted by slow starvation with no food in prospect, when a pipe or cigar will be welcome and a valuable friend in need, resting in the very limbs cheering the fainting heart, allaying the gnawing hanger of the empty stomach. Sir G. W. Forrest, in his book on the Indian Mutiny, tells how at the siege of Lucknow, as the month of August advanced, the tea and sugar, except a small store kept for invalids, were exhausted. The tobacco was gone, and Europeans and natives suffered greatly from the want of it. The soldiers yearned for a pipe after a hard day's work, and smoked dry leaves as the only substitute they could obtain. Mr. L. E. R. Rees, in his diary of the same sage, noted, I've given up smoking tobacco, and have taken to tea leaves and neem leaves, and guava fruit leaves instead, which the poor soldiers are also constantly using. The neem tree is better known, perhaps, as the marmosa as the Magosa. It yields bitter oil, and is supposed to possess frivolous properties. Among the general mass of the population in the early Victorian period, smoking though, certainly not so out-prevailing as now, was yet very common. It is highly probable that one of the things which led to the great increase in pipe smoking, which took place from this time onwards, Was the introduction of the briar pipe. The earliest example of the use of a wooden pipe I've met with is dated 1765, but this was not in England. Many years ago, the late A.J. Mumbai pointed out that a small in one of his letters dated March 18, 1765, giving an account of his journey from Nice to Turin. Describes how he has seen the mountain braves, and on the top thereof met a quixotic figure, whom he thus pictures. He was very tall, meager, and yellow, with a long hooked nose and twinkling eyes. His head was cased in a woolen net cap, over which he wore a flapped hat. He had a silk handkerchief about his neck, and his mouth was furnished with a short wooden pipe from which he discharged wreathing clouds of tobacco smoke. This scarecrow turned out to be an Italian marquis, and no doubt the singularity of his smoking apparatus was of a piece with the singularity of his attire. Mr. Mumbai, after this reference to Smollett's adventure, proceeded to claim the honor of having helped to bring the use of wooden pipes into England. In the year of eighteen fifty three he wrote Muirschaums and clays were the rule at both the England universities and in our shops throughout the land and the art of making pipes of wood was either obsolete; it had never been introduced or wholly in futile. But a college friend of mine, a Norfolk squire, possessed a gardener who was of an inventive turn. Though he was not a Scotchman, this man conceived and wrought out the idea of making pipes of willow wood, cutting the bowl out of a thick stem and the tube out of a thinner one growing from the bowl, so that the whole pipe was in one piece. Willow wood is too soft, so that the pipes did not last long, but they were a valuable discovery, and the young square's friend bought them eagerly at eighteen pence a piece. This experiment in the direction of wooden pipes was interesting and it deserves to be remembered, but it was not long before the briar was introduced and carried everything before it. It was about 1859 that the use of the root of the White Heath, a native of the south of France, Corsica, and some other localities for the purpose of making tobacco pipes was introduced in this country. The word briar or briar has no connection whatever with the prickly, thorny briar, which bears the lovely wild rose. It is derived from the French heath, the root of the white heath being the material known as briar or briar, and at first as brewer. The Oxford Dictionary quotes an advertisement from the tobacco trade review of a so a date as February 8, 1868 of a heath pipe in briar wood. The briar pipe not only soon drove the clay largely out of use, but immensely increased the number of pipe smokers. Boer Lytton may not have known the briar, but he wrote enthusiastically of the pipe. Every smoker knows the glowing tribute he paid to it in his night and morning, which appeared in 1841. It is terser and more to the point than most panegyrics. A pipe, it is a great soother, a pleasant comforter. Blue devils fly before its honest breath. It ripens the brain, it opens the heart, and the man who smokes thinks like a sage and acts like a Samaritan. End of chapter ten.